This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, the daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Monday, the 2nd of November. So we have come out of a really long slog here in Australia, especially in Victoria, where we've had a very long lockdown and the payoff has been really, really low numbers of community transmission now here in Australia. And in contrast, Europe is heading into winter and the case numbers there are ratcheting up really quickly to the point where the UK and many countries in Europe are announcing really tough lockdown measures. And so let's talk about that a bit, Norman. What are we? What are they looking at doing in England and um, some of those European countries? Well, it varies a bit, and it seems to be driven by a fear that their hospitals and ICUs will be overwhelmed. You've already got a significant number of beds taken up in France and Spain. Britain is worried that the NHS, the National Health Service, will be overwhelmed, and I think their hand has been forced. But they're all coming into this late, so they're doing curfews. I don't think there's any country in Europe that's locking down schools, that's shutting down schools, so schools continue. And I think that universities do in some places as well. So the education system stays open. Bars, restaurants, that sort of thing close or are time restricted. So I'm not sure that anybody is really going for the hard stage four type lockdown that we saw in Victoria. And it has to be said, that's really the only thing that works. So the problem that Europe has got, and most European countries, and there are two problems. One is the borders are not properly closed. So if the borders are not closed, you can go to lockdown, but new cases can come in all the time, even though you might have border checks and people are not supposed to come in if they've got symptoms and so on. They do have open borders to some countries in the world, but it's a pretty, if you look at Britain, it's a pretty long list. It includes Australia. Most of them seem quite sensible in terms of having quarantine-free travel. But it's moving around a bit about where else you might have trouble coming in from. And in Europe itself, the borders seem to be largely open, although it's up to each European country to set its own rules. And by the time you're listening to this podcast, this Coronacast, the rules could could possibly have changed. That's why I'm not really being very specific. Point being is that you need a lockdown of your country and you need a lockdown of people's movements so that the virus stays with the person who's infected and you don't get new clusters emerging. And there aren't very many countries in Europe that have got the testing and contact tracing regime that we're lucky to have in Australia. And the question is, are they going to put that in place? So you were saying before that the only thing that really does the job is those really hard lockdowns like we had in Victoria. But doesn't it depend on what approach that country is trying to take? Like we were hearing in the beginning this idea of flattening the curve so that we wouldn't overwhelm the hospital system. Is that what they're trying to do there? Just just push or just smooth out the number of cases a bit more without having to have really tough lockdowns just so that they're not having overwhelmed intensive care units, like a different approach to Australia. Well, it certainly is a different approach to Australia. It's been all along. They went, they lifted whatever lockdowns they had too early. They had a summer summer period where people, particularly in Spain, were just letting their hair down, and we're paying the price for that now. And and so that's all these European countries will achieve is a bit of the flattening of the curve if they're lucky, and therefore a bit of heat off their hospitals and ICUs. But you're still going to have a lot of people who are very sick, 
and they may not succeed as well as they should. Israel's done quite a good job. It was doing really badly with hundreds of thousands of cases and its case rate seems to have come down with a fairly significant lockdown, it has to be said, in Israel. So Israel's a success story now, having been a failure. And uh, so it's been quite impressive how it's, how it's brought it down. But the question is, will that happen in Europe and will it be enough or will it be too late and it's just out of control? What are the projections? Maybe not in every European country, but I know that the UK has released data about the different scenarios. What kind of numbers are we talking about? The sky's the limit, really. I mean, Israel's an interesting example because you've got a small population of, what, 9 million or so people with uh, several hundred thousand cases. And that's what could have happened in Victoria as well. You, when you've got a non-immune population you can have very, very large numbers. And so at the moment, for example, in Britain, as we saw with that prevalence study that we talked about last week on CoronaCast, in June, after 30,000 odd deaths, they had a 6% prevalence of antibodies. So that suggests that 6% of the British public were infected with COVID-19, you know, albeit that the, the antibody levels dropped over a period of time. So there's 94% of the population left to be infected. So that's a lot of people to go. So the sky is the limit, unfortunately. And so the question then on the modelling, and there was interesting modelling out of Washington State about maybe a month, six weeks ago, which suggested that once you got to about 20% prevalence of people who've been infected, so in other words, that level of population immunity, I won't use herd immunity here, it's really a misplaced term, with social distancing, you might be able to control the virus. But that's a long way to go. 20% of the British population is millions. 20% of the German and French population is millions to get to that point, and then you start to control it. So it's a long way to go. Yeah, really high price to pay for perhaps not the payoff that you need to actually stop the spread. Yes, and remember that everybody's getting excited about the fact that the mortality rates come down, as indeed it has, because we're better treating um, people, where, uh, and there are drugs now, particularly dexamethasone, which reduces the death rate, and there'll be other new drugs, antibody drugs, that will start to come on stream. But even so, people are still getting the disease. Um, they are, you know, tonight on 7.30, I've got a story of a radiographer who's worked in Melbourne, and weeks after his infection which he caught in hospital he's still very unwell not able to exercise and really feeling lousy so the the, the burden on the community is enormous beyond people dying so we're getting questions from our audience not just about what's happening in australia but also what's happening overseas and howard's asking what do you make of the curfew measures in europe where you've got pubs closing at 10 p.m and that sort of thing why or how are those sorts of measures effective so a curfew a curfew by itself is not really going to do very much of anything. You've got to stop people moving around during the day as well as at night. And you do that by you know, shutting pubs, shutting restaurants, shutting public areas that are, you know, that are high risk like gymnasia and so on. Um, and then a, a curfew on top of that, and you know, say starting at nine o'clock going through to the early morning, restricts people's movements even more but it's, it's, on the, it's on the margins. It's not going to be the core thing that you do. And of course, no country in Europe is closing down schools, which means that you've got large numbers of parents circulating in the community each day, taking the kids to school and picking them up. Unless, of course, 
they're letting them go by public transport with masks on. And that's the other thing, is the extent to which countries are mandating mask wearing. They should all be mandating mask wearing to really reduce the spread as much as possible in public areas, particularly indoors. And we've got a question from someone in New South Wales who's having greeting anxiety. So they're asking, if we've got aerosol spread, if, the, if I was to be in a room with someone for a long period of time, does it make any difference if I give them a hug when I first see them? And does the 1.5 metre rule matter that much if you're with someone in an enclosed space for a prolonged period? Well, you should not get yourself into a situation where you're in a very poorly ventilated area for an extended period. You should just not be in that situation. So it's fine being indoors, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria these days because the risk is so low, but anywhere you're sitting has got to be ventilated, possibly to to the discomfort of being a bit too cold. So you've got through drafts and fresh air, and then the the risk is much lower. Now, if you give people a hug when you see them, then you're increasing the risk even further. So you should really maintain social distance, touch elbows, and not get too close, because you're just amplifying the problems. Because there's no question, this does spread by droplets and close contact. Um, So you're just making the situation worse. So to avoid greeting anxiety, you just stop hugging people, kissing them, etc. And you um, and you maintain a bit of distance. Well, that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. If you've got a question, please send it in. You go to abc.net.au slash coronacast, click ask a question and mention Coronacast so we can find it. Still lots of questions are coming in and we welcome them. And we also welcome your comments if there's something that you'd like to say that doesn't end in a question mark. And also, please don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can, because we love reading them. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then.